United Nations released a report saying we are in a period of catastrophic uh, extinction of species. The next day, Harry and Meghan had a baby. And guess yeah, what, Dominic? Again. You know, this is what we're doing. Who gives a shit about Harry and Meghan when we're talking about a million species going extinct? Think about the amount of play we're getting out of uh, out of uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie splitting up, or all distractions, or, uh, you know, or or Kim Kardashian's ass, or what the hell is going on, people? Yeah, and the leading scientists of the world are telling us we're in deep trouble. In Today on the show, we are joined with our nation's voice of the earth, the legendary David Suzuki. And wow, this might be one of the most important conversations I have ever had on the show. Currently, David and the CBC are on the verge of releasing a brand new documentary titled Apocalypse Plan B. If you're hearing this episode right away, you can watch that this Friday at 8 p.m. on the CBC. And if you miss that, you can catch the replay anytime on the CBC Gem streaming service. But holy shit, what a jam-packed conversation do we have for you today. We learn about how David got into his position of being a TV personality by accident and chat about so many insane subjects such as how the mainstream media distracts us from critical issues, the human ego causing global demise, our unnatural evolution, the growth of technology, dangers of misinformation, artificial intelligence, sex robots, and so much more. If you only know David from television, this is probably going to be one of the most candid interviews you've ever heard from the man. And I just want to say, if you enjoyed this and know somebody else who would enjoy this, please give it a share. This is such an important message and important talk, and I'm not going to go on about it forever. So why don't you hear it? Here's our chat with David Suzuki. I was in a narration studio and uh, didn't get out in time to get back to my office, so I'm sorry. I've got a crappy background. Oh, no problem at all. I like it. The natural light coming in. It kind of looks uh, like you're coming okay. in from the heavens, you know? It's beautiful. All right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, um, obviously today we're going to talk about apocalypse plan b that premieres friday at 8 p.m on cbc but before i get into that uh i just really want to say um throughout my entire life i you've always been a presence on my television screen a voice for nature earth it's just uh really interesting as i talk to a lot of people from my generation um we don't really know what got you in the position to be that guy, our voice for the earth and everything. And uh, I just like to to know, like, what, what were you doing before you appeared on our television screens? I was a scientist. I never set out. I never set out to be famous or, uh, you know, television. I should go way, way back now. I graduated from high school in 1954 in London, Ontario. In 1954, there was no uh, channel, uh, a television channel in London. 
Oh, wow. And the only way you could get TV was you built a great big antenna and intercepted the signals from Cleveland or Detroit. And if you looked at a television set, all you saw was snow and these kind of shadowy forms. Like it was not, I never watched, we never owned a TV set, never mm -hmm. watched TV, went away to the States to, to college and I was too busy studying. I never watched TV. And, uh, you know, I just, I bought my first television set when I came back to Canada in 1962. And uh, I had a job at the University of uh, uh, Alberta in Edmonton. And uh, so I bought a television set and I was too busy in the lab to uh, to watch TV, but my wife and, and kids did. Uh, anyway, the university had a program called Your University Speaks. And it was shown on the local CBC on a Sunday morning. And they asked me if I would do a show on genetics. And I, I it was just basically a talk show. Mm -hmm. And I gave a talk. They loved it. <laughs> and they asked me to do another one. And I ended up doing eight. So I guess that was my first television series. Anyway, uh, I, you know, I would come to work in the, a couple of weeks later. And people started to say, hey, I watched your show uh, last week. That was great. And my response was, what the hell are you doing watching television on a Sunday mor morning? <laughs> like, you know, I, it was inconceivable. But that's when I realized, oh, my God, this is a powerful, a powerful mm -hmm. way of reaching the public. And so I, I just saw it as a as a tool. And I was very concerned at that time at how poorly Canadians understood how science was affecting their lives. Mm. And so I thought people better become scientifically literate. When you look at the impact of all the new technologies coming in, the public better understand that. And that's how I began, you know, I got to Vancouver and people heard I'd done this television stuff in Alberta. And so I'd get asked to do a book review or come and talk about the latest discovery. And, and gradually, I became a presence uh, on the media. And so when I got a chance to do a, a more serious series, I I jumped at it. And anyway, that's, that's how I got into it. Not because I wanted to be a television uh, personality, but I was trying to bring science to the public and i realized television is a very powerful way to do that that's amazing um that's so cool to hear your story as well and uh, it just seems like you were the perfect guy to do that especially throughout the years a lot of people consider television to be connected with entertainment and i feel like there's more entertainment than than information at times when I feel like maybe there should be a better balance. And no, absolutely. Yeah. You're pointing out the important thing. If you look at the newspaper, the Globe and Mail or the New York Times or whatever, there will be huge sections on politics, huge sections on business, huge sections on sport and on celebrity. But you never see a science section devoted. And yet, you know, science and its impact uh, is it will have a greater impact on our lives. And I was just thinking today, my God, isn't it amazing? Steve Jobs saw how a, a phone, a telephone could become your office. You know, like he had this vision. Who could have imagined the impact of the iPhone in 
10 years. Like you cannot go through life today without your own uh, cell phone or laptop computer. Uh, you know, who, well, we better understand what the impact is. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just good things, it's bad things too that's happening. Social media, Fox News, all of the bullshit that you hear on uh, in the social media. Now people are consuming it and it scares the hell out of me because I notice, you know, my kids don't watch television at all, but they see my program. They see other, they're watching it in a different way mm -hmm. and they're watching it through uh, the internet and social media and all that. But it, well, it really scares me because um, the other day I was going down by by our house and there was a guy working on repairing the street. And uh, so I said, hi, how, how are things going? And, and he was very friendly. But immediately he said, do you did you get your uh, did you get a vaccine? And I said, well, of course, uh, didn't you? And he said, no. And then I got into a conversation. This guy was very friendly. And I got into a conversation with him. And the next thing I know, he had gone down a rabbit hole. And we ended up talking, him telling me about Hillary Clinton, people drinking the blood of babies, and oh, Jeffrey Epstein. And I'm going, what the hell? You know, like, this is an ordinary guy working on the street there. Mm -hmm. And where the, and he kept saying to me, why are you shouting? Why are you shouting? Because I'm going, what the hell? Where are you finding? How do you know? And uh, it scares the bejesus out of me. Yeah. And it's almost like uh, we're getting fed so much information at once. And even I wanted to ask you too, you come from like kind of uh, the generation of putting your work out on whether it's television and radio, but now there's just so many streams. Exactly. I was wondering like in your position, is it harder to get your message out because there's an oversaturation or do Absolutely. you think it's easier because there's so much you can put it on? No, I mean, I can get the message out. You know, I could yeah. do a podcast like you, I could do vlogs. I, I mean, there's all kinds of outlets. The problem is people now in a cell phone have access to more information than ever before. And, uh, the, the problem is they don't have to change their mind about anything. If you want to think there's a there's a conspiracy and governments a, after you, you just have to go on, on the Internet and you'll find all kinds of, of sites that will tell you exactly what you believe. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to believe that the earth is flat. Guess what? There are flatter societies and all kinds of web pages, websites. You want to believe that... Uh, um, you know, there are intelligent creatures that came to earth and raped women and had babies. It's all out there, you know, pyramid, yeah. Bermuda Triangle, <laughs> pyramid power, all of that stuff is out there. The problem now is not access to information, which it was when I started in the business. Mm -hmm. It is deciding what is credible information and what is not. And if you want to believe anybody out there then we're in deep trouble and that's the problem you know that's a climate deniers fact. there are dozens of websites and you have to ask who's paying for this mm -hmm. who you know this is why to me cbc even though people aren't watching cbc or any of the other networks as much cbc is not beholden to private money coming in 
you know, it's it gets its payment from the, the general public. And so I think the CBC, public broadcasting, is where you get information that is credible. I totally agree with that. And uh, even to your point, too, I even remember back in the day, uh, maybe about 20 years ago when the internet was new, I was a teenager and there was something going on with me, like medically that I was like concerned. And I remember typing it in, like searching it up. And it pretty much told me I was going to die in a couple of weeks. That was 20 years ago. I'm still here. But again, too, it's like kids could go on these things and like branch down all these different tunnels. And it's uh, it's dangerous unless you're getting it from like a credible source yeah. and everything. Yeah. I, I really want to talk to you about uh, Apocalypse Plan B. Uh, one thing that really intrigued me was in the press release, it said this was, you quoted one of the most important documentaries or films that you have worked on. And I just want to know, like, why is it so important? Well, I mean, scientists have been warning us for over 50 years that if we continue burning fossil fuels the way that we are, that you know, by the year 2000, they predicted by the year 2000, uh, the world would be in deep trouble because we'd be in, you know, heavy duty global warming. We did our first program on the nature of things on global warming in 1988. And scientists then, leading scientists, you know, Nobel Prize winners were saying, we're heading down a very dangerous path. We've got to get off fossil fuels, look at alternate energy and so on. But the fossil fuel industry that is known that the, of the hazards of, of, uh, of burning fossil fuels from their own scientists were saying, this is causing global warming. Yet the fossil fuel industry in the name of profit began to say, no, this is bullshit. The evidence isn't in. It has to do with sunspots. This is this is a natural cycle, all of that stuff. And it was all to keep from focusing on climate change and what uh, is an alternative path until now we're at a time when we've run, we've run out of time. We've run out of time to really change the course that we're on. We had 10 years of a Stephen Harper government. Now he comes from Calgary. His whole thing is protect the fossil fuel industry. He worked his ass off to keep people like me from bringing our message out to the public. I won't have to go into it, but you wouldn't believe what our government did to try to suppress discussion about climate change as a serious issue. Now Trudeau has emerged. He said, we're back. He went to Paris, signed an agreement. I asked him, are you serious about this? He said, yes. Two years later, we bought a pipeline and he doesn't seem to be any different from Stephen Harper. He's yeah. supporting the fossil fuel industry. And as I've said, we have run out of time. We're already into the impact of climate change. Even if we stopped all use of fossil fuels today, overnight, the warming is gonna carry on because we're, we've added so much stuff to the atmosphere that it's going to continue to heat the planet. And rather than, than everybody saying, we've got an emergency, we have to now look for the alternatives to fossil fuels. We've got to help the people that are in the industry move to different activities because this industry cannot continue. Instead, what are we doing? 
we're saying we can't do anything about uh, climate change because we're going to lose all these jobs. The uh, uh, fossil fuel industry is a huge part of our economy, which it isn't. It's less than 5% of the Canadian economy. Well, that's a significant amount, but it's not so crucial that we can't look for uh, uh, alternatives. But instead, we're just, you know, in 19, uh, sorry, 2018, the, FOS, uh, the United Nations, the COP process, the Council of All Parties, the, and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in 2018, they released a special report that said we must not allow temperature to rise above one and a half degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. One and a half degrees. That was a target we had to keep at. And this was the warning. It was a scary document. It said, look, all indications are don't let temperature rise above one and a half degrees by the year 2100. That was a clarion call. The next day in Canada, after that report was released, marijuana became legal in Canada. And guess what was on all of the media outlets? Mm. Marijuana, marijuana, blah, blah, blah. It's and like this, a distraction type of thing. Yeah, yeah, this clarion call that should have been set us on a different path disappeared. In mm. 2019, in May, the United Nations released a report saying we are in a period of catastrophic uh, extinction of species. We've already extinguished countless numbers, but another 1 million species may go extinct in a few years. Again, a terrifying document because we are utterly dependent on the diversity of animals and plants in the world. The next day, Harry and Meghan had a baby. And guess yeah, what, Dominic? Again. You know, this is what we're doing. Who gives a shit about Harry and Meghan when we're talking about a million species going extinct? Think about the amount of play we're getting out of uh, out of uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie splitting up, or all distractions, or, uh, you know, or or Kim Kardashian's ass, or Jennifer yeah. Lopez and Ben Affleck, or what the hell is going on, people? Yeah, and the leading scientists of the world are telling us we're in deep trouble. In fact, we're now on a track to hit one and a half degrees by 2030. That's supposed to be the target for 2100. We're going to hit it in just uh, six years. And we're still not doing anything serious about it. Yeah. And it seems like uh, like the way you explain it, like it's almost like this is happening because of people's temporary greed in their mindset of just fuck the future now we're going to try to make as much money as we can and no, whatever no, no no i think that's too easy letting off the industry the reality is the industry the fossil fuel industry has known since 1959 that's when one of the top scientists of the world met with the american petroleum institute and said if you keep burning fossil fuels like this we are going, by the year 2000, we're going to be in deep trouble. And in 1960s, Exxon's own scientists said, look, 
This is this is serious if we don't do something about it. So it's not that people were greedy. It's that corporations were greedy and corporations pay money to politicians to run for office. And that's what the problem is. And so we get to the time now where we only have a few years left and we're going to hit 1.5. And so we realize, oh, my God, we should have stopped burning fossil fuels decades ago and we should have stopped cutting down trees which are the best way to remove carbon dioxide are the forest but now it's too late and that's why apocalypse b2 is coming up because it's too late rather than saying to the fossil fuel industry you guys get off you stop doing what you're doing immediately and you start looking for your the alternatives your energy companies, not oil companies, get us onto, we're not doing that. We're just continuing to crank out profit for the fossil fuel industry. And now they're saying, well, we got a problem, but we've got too much up there now, too much carbon there. We need a solution. So rather than saying, stop making the problem worse, we're saying, okay, you can keep pumping out uh, fossil fuels because we can't make the change and we'll find a way of dealing with it. Oh, let's capture the carbon we've released and pump it into the ground and store it underground. Or let's have huge fans that will blow through the atmosphere and filter out the carbon. Or let's put it deep under the oceans and uh, and we'll be able to, uh, it'll condense under high pressure and become a rock. Or let's grow vast farms of uh, seaweed in the ocean to take, or uh, Let's put, now I see the latest one is, we'll spray particles way up in the atmosphere and those particles will help to shield the sun or the one that we dealt with in the program. Let's have a fleet of 747s working 24 hours a day and spraying sulfur dioxide or sulfur compounds into the atmosphere. Why are we doing that? Because when volcanoes go off, volcanoes emit uh, high amounts of sulfur, and the sulfur temporarily uh, cuts off the amount of light, sunlight that hits the earth, and so it cools things. But mm. of course, the volcanoes stop producing it, the uh, sulfur falls. In order to duplicate a volcano, you have to have planes excreting, excreting sulfur 24 hours a day, Wow, seven days a week, every day of the year. And then at wow. the end of a year, according to these guys, we'll have reduced uh, the amount of temperature by half a degree. But the problem is those planes are all adding more carbon to the atmosphere. They're going 24 hours a day. They're making the problem worse. So in a year, we'll have to increase the amount of sulfur. And every year we have to keep increasing. Do we think we know what the hell we're doing? Do we think we are so smart? You know, when people invented DDT and found that it killed insects, we said, oh, this is great. Kill the insects and we can, you know, our plants will grow and, you know, kill mosquitoes so we don't get malaria. And the guy that showed this won a Nobel Prize in 1948. Then in the 1960s, people went, oh, why are the eagles disappearing? Why are women, women developing breast cancer? And what do they find? Something we didn't know anything about. 
when yeah. DDT began to be used, called biomagnification up the food chain. What the hell? So we think we're so smart. We're going to take over the atmosphere and manipulate the atmosphere. Do we? Are we serious? Guess what? The the research that governments and the private sector are supporting are all about these kinds of Looney Tunes idea. You know, we'll keep pumping out carbon dioxide because the public needs to burn uh, oil in order to do what they do. And so we got to find a way to reduce temperature a, a different way. It's crazy. Yeah, and it, it almost seems like people will like, panic to come up with like a solution but one solution will cause another problem like messing up the natural order of everything the solution is us and we think we are so smart that we're going to engineer our way out of problems but wait a minute now don't we study any history of modern science when atomic bombs were dropped on japan the reason was of course to to end the war and maybe that that uh, that worked, but it was only years later we discovered a thing called radioactive fallout. It was only years later we discovered that atomic bombs emit uh, gamma rays that knock out electrical circuits. It was decades later we discovered a thing called the possibility of nuclear winter. Jesus Christ, we've learned from experience that we're not smart enough. We don't know enough to use these powerful techniques to manipulate the world around. The only thing that we can manipulate and manage is us. We have no idea about that the, the complexity of the atmosphere, about the complexity of the web of life around the world, about the, nest, the, the complexity of soil. We don't know any of this stuff. And yet we think we're so smart, we can find little, well, we're a very inventive creature. We can invent new technologies, but if we think that we're they're going to get us out of these ecological problems, we're dreaming in in uh, we're that's just daydreams. Yeah, it sounds like almost like the human ego is its own worst enemy. You know, it's very yeah. toxic in a way. Yeah. And um, the problem, so, yeah. the problem is that the very reason we evolved and are so successful was our brain. You know, all of the evidence is that we evolved as a species 150 to 200,000 years ago in Africa. And when you think about uh, these two-legged furless apes wandering around in Africa, you got to say, holy cow, they're not very impressive. I mean, we weren't very, there weren't many of us. We weren't very big. We weren't very fast. A chimpanzee could whip anybody's ass. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we weren't strong, fast big uh, we didn't have special senses our key to survival was a brain and it worked you know we were observant we had a great memory we were inventive and uh, uh, we uh, we learned from our mistakes and because we developed a voice and we then developed language we could pass on what we learned through language to our children and so that was really a huge advantage. But for 95% of the time we've been on Earth, our ancestors survived as nomadic hunter-gatherers. We had to follow animals and plants through the seasons on their migrations, and we had to learn to take them in order to survive. And yet, despite that, 
limitation of how we live. We mm. moved across the entire planet. That's an astounding thing. We moved into areas where we didn't evolve to live, to the Arctic. We moved into steaming jungles. We moved into deserts. We moved into mountainous areas and wetlands. We were, because of our brain, we were able to find a way to live in these very different ecosystems. But we weren't, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. We, you know, when you look at the history of our species, when you follow humans moving across the planet, we, you can see there's a wave of extinction of the big, slow-moving, yummy animals, slow-moving sloths, dodo birds, even with spears and, and stone axes. We were very effective as a predator, and we had to learn to live in balance with our surroundings. And that those lessons are the fundamental part of indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. We have this incredible opportunity. The only people that we know of that live in balance for thousands of years are indigenous people around the world. So here we are, we these modern people with our cell phones and our big cars and our fancy yachts and our jet planes and and we think we're so smart that we can live, you know, Elon Musk thinks he's so smart that he can invent technology. He's going to go to the moon. We've screwed up our planet. So get the hell out and let's get mm -hmm. to the moon. That's the conceit of modern technology and science. And yet here are people fighting for their territory whose ancestors have lived there for thousands of years and who know what we need to think in order to live sustainably for long periods of time. This is why I put all my, my effort now to helping indigenous people fight to get their land. And people say, oh, those greedy Indians, if we give them the land back, they'll screw it up the way that we did. Bullshit. How do you think they got where they are? And you know why they want their land back? Yes, they feel their future is tied to the land, but they want it back because they want they want to practice their responsibility. And that's what we don't have. You know, you look at all these people yelling about freedom now. How can you have freedom when the air coming out of my nose goes straight up anyone around's nose and whatever I'm breathing comes out of everybody else's nose? Isn't there some responsibility? All these anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, wait a minute. We share the air. Mm -hmm. You've got a responsibility. We all do. Don't talk about freedom. Freedom without responsibility is anarchy. It's a rejection of the society that we are part of. So let's stop this, all this bullshit about freedom, freedom, freedom. Let's look to what indigenous people are saying that we have a responsibility to care for Mother Earth. And we better learn that lesson bloody fast. Well, thank you for Sorry, I ranted on no, your No, this is this is important. Your... This is why you're here, David. I was just gonna thank you for your passion and spreading this message that's so important too. And even I was just kind of lost in thought throughout that too. And even making me really feel like a lot of like the way like humanity's going is always trying to 
evolve in an unnatural way you know we're all connected to our cell phones like i'm feeling like i'm practically a cyborg without it inside of me you know it's like connected to me and like the way like we use fuel and everything and do you believe like this unnatural um need to evolve is going to be our own demise oh yeah for sure but i think we're going to be uh, you know, the, the whole issue of AI has repercussions that are unbelievable. And I, you know, I saw an example of that the other day. I just read my entire book, The Sacred Balance, the latest edition for an audio uh, audio book. Now, I read it over several weeks and I had a technician. All he had to do was punch a button and then read as I was reading. He followed through to make sure I didn't make a mistake. After we had put the whole book down, I he then ran that program, what well, the the record, through uh, AI. And guess what? There are were dozens and dozens and dozens of mistakes, wrong words, mispronunciations. I had to go in for a whole day just to make up the mistakes. The technician's supposed to pick those up. The machines are way better than we are, right? Mm. And then, okay, well, that may be just a help to me, audio taping. Then we were uh, trying to find a a title for, this is one of the hard things we do in in television, is what's a good title for our show in three or four words? How do you convey what you want? And we had a title for a climate, global warming show that we were doing that Ryan Reynolds was uh, narrating. Mm. And... uh, he did a great job, but uh, we asked the computer. Uh, we we didn't tell the computer about that that show, but we said we want to do a show about climate change. We want a title. It's got to be short. It's got to be punchy. It's got you know. And we said this is what the show is all about. That machine in seconds. Now we had spent days trying to figure out a good title for the show. In seconds, the machine came back with a title, and we went. Holy shit, that's way better than the title that we had. We better do a whole other show to fit that title. So the machine in art, in music, in poetry, (laughs) in writing is doing a better job than we do. Why do we need humans? It's it's insane. Uh, A friend showed me too, like one of those uh, AI typing stuff. And he's like, hey, watch this. And he's like, uh, he types in, what are three things we should do when we get up in the morning? And write it in the voice of Stephen King. And then all of a sudden, it starts typing. It has an intro. It had the three points. And then it had the most perfect sum up, like it was an essay, but also like a scary story. And I was like, oh, my God. And it did it immediately, immediately. And it's just, it's freaky. And we really don't know where this is going. Yeah. And that same guy showed me another program where you send that and you can put it with another AI that does a voice that you can't even tell it's a robot. And then he took that to a third program where it takes stock footage. So it made it into a documentary and all of this happened in under 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) it's spooky. you know i i'd always thought that the big thing was going to be uh robot sex sex uh 
companions. And because in yeah. China now, because China had a one child policy and what the Chinese, they, they value boys over girls. They had a whole program of femicide. They were killing uh, female, female fetuses because they only wanted a son. And what you've got now is I, I can't remember whether it's 30 or 60 million more males than females. So what the hell do you do with that imbalance, you know? And, you know, they, they're going to have to encourage homosexuality. They're going to have to put them in uh, in soldiers' uh, uh, outfits and go for more room. They're going to have to, you know, scavenge females in other countries. Um, they're going to uh, encourage women to have more than one partner. I mean, the implications of that sex imbalance are huge. If you could get sex sex robots that would be ideal. So I said this decades ago. Well, mm -hmm. in Japan now, not only do they have robots keeping old people company in, in old age homes, and they don't look like a human anymore. It's just a little machine. But the elders really respond to that. And guys now are marrying their sex bots, and they, they're not having sex, but they're so attached they're marrying them. And... Um, well, I, you know, Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer, foresaw a lot of the dangers of robots. And he had uh, three rules of robotics to keep them from interfering with them. And one of the things is that robots must not do harm to human beings. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for this movie, Megan, that's coming out. Yes, I have. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie, but I watched the trailer for it. Yeah, that's all I've seen. But yeah. there you go. You know, this this robot that the woman bought for her uh, her grand uh, her uh, niece to keep her company. But that robot, you know, she's inactivated by saying, OK, shut down. But the robot in the trailer says, I'm not ready to shut down. Mm -hmm. And her job is to protect that girl, but at what cost, you know, I mean, it's. Yeah. And what's scary is I feel like we're not far away from it where 20 years ago, I used to see oh, all there. these films and like the Terminator and stuff and just, Oh, it's all fiction. And now you look at like that. Some of the technology we have, like right now, like we're talking together on a screen that was star Trek and people are like, Oh no, that's just fantasy. Yeah. This is now, right? It's yeah. crazy, David. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, before uh, we go to, I just want to thank you so much for your time and everything. Uh, I really cherish this conversation. Like I mentioned to you, always been a presence on my television for good and almost the voice of the voiceless. I always uh, connect you with like the unheard voice of the earth in a way. So this means a lot uh, uh, talking to you. And um, just before we go, um. What, as I, as like an individual, like hearing this, being totally overwhelmed, wanting to save everything, but also feeling helpless, like what can I do day to day to uh, make this place of like better for the future? Well, the problem, this is the question I'm asked over and over again. And at this time of my life, I've come to realize, you know, that we, we've been fighting all these years for various things. We're all trapped. We're trapped within a system that is inevitably destructive. And, and the reason is we've shifted from what we've always known, that we are one strand in a web of relationships, relationships with all other species of animals, plants, with the air, the water, the soil, and sunlight. 
People have always known that. When you hear people talk about Mother Earth, that is an expression of the fact. We understand that we are we are possible. We're, we're given birth to by Earth and all of the things that, that go into it. And we treat Mother Earth with respect. <clears throat> but in the last 1,000 years, we've shifted from that way of seeing ourselves to what we call an anthropocentric way where we're we're in a pyramid. We're no longer in a web. We're in a pyramid where we're at the top and everything down below is for us. And our legal systems, our economic systems and our political systems all reflect the fact that we think that we're at the top. So our judicial systems are all set up to define, you know, borders and rights between individuals. But what about nature's rights? What about, you know, the, the our human borders don't mean a damn thing to nature. You know, uh, nature pays no attention, but our judicial systems are all set up to manage humans. Our economic system is based on the creed of cancer. Economists think it can grow forever. Wait a minute now, the world is finite. Nothing can grow in a finite world forever. So it's crazy to have something based on endless growth. And the other thing is, recent paper came out in the UK showing the problem with the economy is nature isn't in that, that economic system. Mark Carney uh, points out in his book, Values, that Amazon, the company Jeff Bezos has made, is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Amazon, the greatest ecosystem on the planet, is worth nothing in our economic system until someone logs it, mines it, dams it, or develops it, or makes it into agriculture. Before that, the, the Amazon rainforest is not is worthless to our economy. And our political system, well, it's based on people who vote. Children don't vote. You know, future generations don't exist. Trees don't vote. Air doesn't vote. We have the best possible people I can imagine now as a minister of the environment in the federal government, Stephen Gilbo. We have a, one of the best people as a minister of fisheries and oceans, Joyce Murray. But their job isn't to protect the environment or the oceans or the fish. Their job is to help the people who are going to vote for them in the next election. Hmm. So our systems trap us into doing what is inevitably destructive. So what is needed is really, we call it transformation, but it really is a revolution. The mm. question is, can we have a revolution without killing people, without hurting people? It is going to hurt, but the people who are going to be hurt most are corporations, because we cannot allow corporations to run just for the sake of profit. It's going to hurt politicians who care about the people that support them and the people that support them are corporate executives. They're going to be hurt. But I think that the general public, I appeal to every mother and father, if you love your children, then you have to love earth because earth is what allows your children and your grandchildren to grow up healthy and well.
So I'm appealing to every parent and I'm appealing to their love of children. Stop saying, oh, I can't do that. I want to get a new car. I want a new set of clothing. Stop that. Start with, I love my child. And it's children. You've heard of Greta Thunberg. It's children who are telling us. Science tells us if we keep on the way we're going, children don't have a future to look forward to. So I am saying every mother and father, you've got to be warriors on behalf of your children. Powerful words. Thank you so, so, so much, David. Appreciate the time. Really enjoyed this talk and everything. And uh, as the doc gets released and all your projects, whether it's novels, I noticed you had a podcast season, um, any other films that get released, we'll be sure to share it on our platform. And yeah, I can't stop saying thank you, David. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. I, what you've given me is an avenue to an audience. I hope you have a big podcast audience. But uh, thank you for letting me share the ideas. But I do have another appointment. I've got to run. Yes, much love. Have a great day. Thank you. Holy shit balls! What a talk. Um, before I get into the outro, I just want to say, I don't ask you guys for much. Um, but if you did enjoy this episode, can you please share it with a friend or on your socials? Um, I believe David's message is so important and it just must be shared. That's it. And for more on the subject, like we mentioned, if you're watching this episode immediately, you can check out Apocalypse Plan B this Friday, 8 p.m. on the CBC. And if you missed that, you can watch the replay anytime on the CBC Gem streaming service. I'm new to checking out Gem and it's pretty cool. It's uh, kind of like a Canadian Netflix, but very CBC based, has all your news, documentaries. So if you're not an avid TV watcher like me and you kind of want to know what's going on with the CBC channel, their content, all that, it's all on there. And even I believe there's live news, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And no, they're not a sponsor, but uh, I just checked it out. I thought it was cool. So yeah, check it out. Check out David's show. And before we go, like always, I got to thank all you legends on the Patreon page. First up, the co-producer Jeremy Hopkin of Hopkin Design, Amanda McKnight of Top 10 Nerd, Ryan Watkins of Ryan Radio, the wonderful Jenny Potter, who also told me she's about to do her first podcast episode. No doubt it's going to be awesome because you're awesome. And another shout out to the man, Devin McBride, Ryan frickin' Campbell, my boy, Mike Ulio, my favorite soul singer, Saber, and last but not least, Francis Coffer, a.k.a. my mom. If you want a shout out at the end of every single episode and also get these episodes early raw and uncut right when i was done the conversation with david i just took the zoom call dragged and dropped it right onto the patreon page for you to see and listen you can go to patreon.com slash the creative imbalance it's only three dollars a month you get all that and you also get to go to bed at night Rest your head knowing that you're a badass motherfucker who supports independent media. Thank you so much. And even if you don't want to sign up for anything, please give this a share to somebody you love. 
that's all I got to say. Appreciate you guys listening, and we'll have more for you real soon. Have a great week. Ciao.